verses 16 through 26. Um, title of the area is called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Good morning. Uh, we're continuing our series called Faith and Purpose, and we're embarking on kind of three weeks, and then a number of us are off to uh, Nepal, but uh, today and the two weeks after this, uh, we're going to be taking a look at spiritual gifts, and this is something that should matter to each and every one of us here, how we are gifted by the manifestation of God's Holy Spirit, and so that's the next few weeks. Uh, we've mentioned this before, that it's not uncommon to think that the good life would be defined in our current era by getting what you want and not really having to do anything. Uh, and and it's, you, you know this is true and you've been affected by this because not just some, sometimes you're just really busy and you've got a lot of things and go on the go and, you know, one more thing to go to or one more thing to help with or whatever it might be. But this is now a general feeling in our culture that, that we can at times kind of get frustrated at any responsibility that we might have. Because the assumption is that, that the good life means I don't have any responsibility, but I get what I want. Um, I, I know I'm overstating it, but I'm mindful of this in my own life as well. And I can think like, okay, this afternoon I don't have to do anything. Good. And it is good. And I do like times of rest. Last week I was away, uh, last weekend, for my 20, well, it was our 25th. Jen was away with me as well for our anniversary. Um, we mainly kind of marked it last summer when we got a chance to go to, go to Europe. But uh, we took a couple of days away last weekend as well. It used to be when we got married, only old people had 25th wedding anniversaries. But now young people do too. So, um, But you're mindful of it at a time like that because last Sunday morning, confession time we didn't go to church anywhere uh, I got up kind of early um, and went down to Starbucks and and sat and had a cup of coffee and did some reading and then uh, and then Jen and I went to the breakfast to breakfast which was fantastic um, and of course I'm thinking I was thinking and praying of you here at Sutherland and in a way I was like 
you know, thinking, oh, it would be lovely to be there. But there's that other part of you that says, isn't it nice to have a day off? And it is. And this is, this is the tension that I want to talk into today as we consider God's word together. As we look at faith and purpose and as we look at spiritual gifts, the distinction at times and the proper understanding in Christian terms of benefits and responsibilities. We've been looking recently into the Sermon on the Mount as part of this series, Faith and Purpose. And last week, Grady Bueller, uh, Father Grady, as he's known now, uh, ordained in the Anglican Church, he did a great job uh, when I was away, when we were away, of looking at Jesus and the law, faith and religion. Today, we look at benefits and responsibilities. And I have as a graphic here, this is how we can understand it in our lives now. What's a benefit and what's a responsibility? And you see right away as I name that, they're distinct often in our understanding. And one of the places that they're most distinct is in contracts that you get when you sign up for anything. Whether it's a loyalty program or, um, you know, a a cell phone contract, a a bank where, you know, you're going to get all these benefits of having an account here. And so they tend to line them up like this. It's really legal jargon, and you never read them, right? Or most of you don't, but you sign them, so you agree to them. And they're basically saying, here's what we will do for you, and what would you think that is? Those are the benefits. But here's what you're agreeing to, and those are the responsibilities. It's an interesting concept in Christian faith, because in Christian faith, this is not, I will contend, the proper way to think about these things. But our world today isn't necessarily, I think in some ways it it will. There's some good, intelligent, thoughtful, considerate dialogue in the world as a whole. But too often this distinction is made very clearly. Benefit and responsibility. In Christian faith, these things kind of meld together. We've also kind of, as a side note in this series, said that as we look at faith and purpose in our current world right now, you're living in this year, not last year and not next year. You're formed by where you've come from and the people that were part of your life and are part of your life. And you're hopefully headed somewhere, and we are as a church. But we can only live our faith right now. And sometimes we get stuck in that because we think, well, one day I'll be spiritual or something like that. This is where we live our interaction with God in the here and now. And one of the things that is current right now in many people's religious faith, and they often don't identify it or it's used by people who know how to use fear and anger, and a lot of people know how and are willing to do it, one of the things that's present is a feeling of displacement in the world for many religious people. This isn't only Christian people, but you can see this in dialogue across uh, the West, as we call it, Europe and North America, and other countries, other places, and you can see it in sometimes your own feeling. Feeling that maybe as a religious person or a person of Christian faith, you don't quite fit. And so as we consider faith and purpose, I'd like you to think where you do feel displaced in this world. Sometimes you can feel displaced in the church, but sometimes as as a person who holds Christian faith, you might feel displaced in in the world as a whole or in certain aspects of your life. I'm going to say that in terms of benefits and responsibilities, because we have this um, umbrella in a sense, this, this thing that sits over everything, that we can think because of our culture that A benefit means, you know, I get what I want and I don't have to do anything. And a responsibility is maybe sometimes burdensome. That if we feel, what that leads to is we often feel displaced in these areas of responsibility. 
Oh, I have to go to the church now. Oh, I have to go to work now. And I felt this in my own life. I felt this much more when I wasn't working in a church, when I was working for a bank or when I was painting houses and it's a long time ago. Um, and, and I felt this feeling of displacement often. And some of you have those feelings. It's one of the challenges and gifts of the Christian faith to say, okay, here's how your mind works to a large degree. I'm not saying I know everything about you. Most things I don't know. But I can tell you a little bit about how your mind works because it's been conditioned by this culture, good and bad. And one of the ways in which it's been conditioned is this type of thinking. Okay, I get what I want here, so that's a benefit. I have to do a task here, so that's a responsibility. And one of the gifts and challenges of the Christian faith is going to be, and some of you know the scripture, right, that says you are to work for the renewing of your mind, and and God's transformation of your life in Christ will renew your mind. So instead of only being conditioned by the culture, good and bad, your mind will be conditioned by faith. And one of the ways that that, one of the things that that will change is how you think of benefits and responsibilities. So that's how we're going to walk into the conversation of spiritual gifts. And we'll take three well-known portions of Scripture in these next three weeks. Today, Galatians chapter 5. Next week, Romans 12. And then two weeks from now, 1 Corinthians 12, the first week in March, when we send off the Nepal group. This passage, Galatians 5, and I'm aware that we're not taking a whole book study here. We're taking just this portion. But I'll outline the book of Galatians for you briefly, and then 1 through 6 on the screen there outline just our chapter, chapter 5. Galatians was uh, what is, or the letter to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, was part of Asia Minor, what's now kind of you think of mostly as Turkey. Paul, who writes this letter, and others had evangelized that area. In other words, they had come, lived, shared, spoken Christian gospel, and people had responded in faith. So you had a number of new Christians, you had a number of people who were new to the faith, and that made up a lot of the church. And as you know, Paul traveled around, and so he would leave this area. And then this letter was written on the occasion where he and others had evangelized this area, seen many people come to faith in Christ, and then they heard when they had left the region that something had gone wrong. There was a problem. And this letter, this brief letter in the New Testament, is written because of that problem. And the problem's easy to identify when you read the letter, and particularly easy to identify in this chapter. After Paul and the others had left, other people came in, teachers, wise people, I think probably in many ways well-meaning people, who came in and spoke to those people new to the faith and said, okay, those guys are gone, now we'll tell you what you really need to know. But what they told them, and they're referred to in this text as Judaizers, and effectively what was happening is they came in and they said, okay, you're, you're now a Christian. In other words, there's a distinction between many people previously of the Jewish faith and now you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But people had come in and said, no, 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 whatever about your faith. They weren't always necessarily trying to tear that down. But what you need to do, what really makes a difference is all of this and, you know, picture it like a big box of rules and ceremonies. And they said, for you to really know you're okay with God, here's the list of stuff. And Paul heard about this and got extremely upset and wrote this letter. And 
this chapter alone will remove the idea from your head that the Bible is a nice and proper book. Because the language in this chapter is harsh and graphic and some would argue quite, you know, unacceptable. But that's how upset Paul is. Rules and ceremony, and in this text, circumcision. This was part of the box of things that had to be done. And so you can read in this chapter, he'll talk about that. It's pretty strong language. So what Paul is saying is, look, circumcision or not doesn't matter. Religious, these religious rituals. But he does say, if you allow yourself to accept this box of rules and ceremony as the things that make the difference in your standing in the world before God, if you allow yourselves to accept that, this is strong, then really you don't have much to do with Jesus Christ. Not that he's speaking against the rules per se. What he's speaking against is that these are the things that will get your standing before God. The language he uses, and remember he was just talking about circumcision. The language he uses is this. If you give your life to this, rather than to growing in faith in Christ and walking in the Spirit, you might as well be severed from Christ. Why would he use that language talking in this context? Exactly. That's how graphic he's getting here. If you think salvation comes from rules... And the question for us is, can we hear this today? And where in religious faith, Christian and otherwise, now other religions that are morality-based, Christianity isn't one of them and shouldn't be one of them. Christianity is based on forgiveness, life in Jesus Christ. doesn't mean we're not moral. It just means that morality is not what gets our standing before God. So could we today follow rules as the thing that will get us standing before God more than faith in Christ? Of course, the answer is yes. Some of you have lived in cultures and subcultures like that. And this is Paul's warning in the letter. In verse 6, he'll say explicitly, it's not what matters, rule or not rule. What matters, here's Christian faith, what matters is faith working itself out in love. Now, do you think there will be a moral aspect to that? Of course there will. What matters is faith in Christ. Working itself out in love. I can tell you what matters in your life. And you have a lot of concerns. And right now you could come to me and you would list the 20 things that really matter. And I would have a heart for you. And I would feel for you. Some of you are dealing with incredible challenges in family, health, whatever it might be. But even with all of that, here is what Scripture, Galatians 5, will tell us matters. This is what matters. Faith, faith in Christ, working itself out in love. There's the measurement for your life. These people who came in and distorted the gospel said, this is what matters. Here's the box. And then verses 7 to 12, Paul really starts to, uh, um, well, he gets pretty strong. If you read those verses, he says, kind of with that furrowed brow and this, you know, when, when people look surprised at something, but they're really not surprised. Because he really doesn't know what's going on. But you're so upset. So, you know, I don't know. Our cat's been in a lot of trouble this week. That, and then you yell at your cat and say, did you do that? And you know, or your kid or something like that. What did you do? As if you didn't know. Paul is going to do a little bit of that and say, you were doing well in your faith in Christ. What happened to you? Now he knows the answer to that question, doesn't he? 
What happened? Who did you start listening to? One of the things that I'm growing in my own life, my leadership, I hope, as a minister, is that I think I'm a little bit naive. I think that people are a little more discerning than they maybe really are. And I think often people are kind of willing to listen to whoever is yelling the loudest in some ways. And and Paul says to them, we maybe thought more of them too, and says, you people, who did you start listening to after we told you about freedom in Jesus Christ? Because that's the warning at the beginning of this chapter is, you were free. We explained to you that you were free. And now you've taken up this burden again. And he'll say in this section, if you do that, this is an important question, if you do that, then what's the point of the cross? This is a question for our church for Christianity in general, today. If we live as if this box of whatever the current code is, and whatever our interpretation of Scripture is, but the rule-oriented stuff, if we live as if that is the thing that matters, then I will say to you, then why does the cross have any meaning at all? Because all you need to do is earn your way. Now, This is, even when we're well-meaning in faith, even when we want to see people become Christians, isn't this a tremendous temptation to go back to this box? And I'll tell you where you see it. In just about every Christian institution, that temptation. Who's a good kid? Well, they're the ones who do what? Follow the rules. Right? And I'm not saying it's, you know, that's a bad thing. I'm just saying, we are so tempted to keep going back to this. And the warning is, you were called to freedom, and you are allowing yourselves to be enslaved all over again. And verse 12 is Paul's most graphic verse in this section. He says, I wish those who are preaching this to you would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. He's still playing with the circumcision metaphor. I wish they would just go all the way. Now, this is not, you know kindly theological argument. Paul is saying, this way of thinking, and I maintain it today, this way of thinking for the Galatians at that time and in some ways for us now, is the biggest challenge to Christian faith. There are challenges we face from the outside world, self-centeredness and a little bit of what I talked about before, benefits and responsibilities, wrong thinking about that, selfishness, right? Humanity is the center rather than God. All those. But in terms of what's happening within religious circles, this remains a huge challenge. And Paul says, those people who are teaching that, and I I sometimes think I need to be nice to ministers and other churches that are really moralistic, right? And then I hear Paul. I wish they would just go all the way. And then our portion, 16 to 26. Introducing benefits and responsibilities. And here's the structure of that section. You are, instead of being caught up either in your own self-centered sin or in giving yourself to religious obligation measurement by code, and you are to do something else. You are to walk in the Spirit. Introduces this in verse 16, and the description follows in verses 22 through 26. But there's an interlude right after verse 16. This is often how your mind works. And good theologians will work this way. Paul works this way. He says, you are to walk in the Spirit. You are free. And then he anticipates what some religious people do right away. Remember, 
because even as I describe this, I can tell some people, uh-oh, is he speaking against the rules? So Paul says, look, in a way he's saying, you don't need all this. But then he says, I'm not really saying that. You're free. So people think, okay, none of that matters. And then he shifts in verse 17 and says, look, I know it's obvious. Sin, sin is obvious. Because as soon as you say you're free, somebody says, well, then people are just going to sin. So verses 17 to 21, he takes that up and talks about living according to the flesh instead of living according to the spirit. And he says the desires and appetites of the flesh are opposed to the desires and appetites of the spirit. And he says the word in that text is translated a few different ways. The main two, depending on what translation you have, will be the the desires of the flesh or the works of the flesh, the works of the sinful nature are evident. Some of you have that word, right? And others of you have the word obvious. They're both proper, but what's being said is, look, yes, I know people are terrible sinners. And I know that left to ourselves, look at the kind of things we choose. And then you get the list. And isn't it a lovely list, right? Jennifer, thank you for reading that great list this morning. Um, Where is it starting in verse 17? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, that's in the ESV, or obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. See how he's listing them so quickly? He's, he's, he isn't under some misguided assumption that left to ourselves, humans are so wonderful. He's saying it's obvious when you walk in the flesh and just live according to appetite, you can fall into being enslaved by some of these things. And so he has this interlude. And then the solution to that, both before and after this part of the text, Some people would say, okay, if people are like that, go through the list in your mind, then you know what they need? What do they need to fix it? Religion. So let's bring religion. Let's bring guilt. Let's bring control. Let's bring fear. And we'll stop people from doing these things. Let's really think judgmentally about anybody who sins. And to the extreme sometimes, shunning, right? Strong, strong judgment, whatever it might be. Managing behavior. It's true that left to ourselves, and I know this about you, and you know that I love you, but I know this about you. Left to ourselves, we are lazy, self-centered, sinful. We are driven by appetites to get what we want, to treat other people not as people, but as accessories. And we have this value that I don't want anybody else to tell me what to do. The easiest way to live our lives is to satisfy our bodily desires. And we can see how this can happen in the world and be held as a virtue. So, as Paul introduces this list and says, look, it's obvious that if we just live according to self, we're going to live this way. What's the solution? And there's two options identified in this text. The first is the religious grid. And this is the way that the Galat- this is what the Galatians were dealing with, and in many, ta- in many parts of our world today still, this is the way. So if the reality is that people are sinful, what are we going to do about it? First, put a religious grid over it and seek to reform them. 
that can work to a degree, actually. And it, in some ways, it might be better than nothing. But in some ways, it's worse than nothing. So there's that way. Or Paul is saying, there is freedom in Jesus Christ. Here is the question of what you are saved into. In other words, you will choose not to live according to only be driven by the appetites of your flesh. You'll choose to live differently because you are serving something greater. Where there's real life, real future, freedom in Jesus Christ. And then comes the good list. It's evocative as well. The first list is evocative. It evokes things. You know what I mean by that, right? Jen reads the list that she read and it makes you think, oh, those are, whoa, that's strong. It can be evocative. The second list is evocative as well. The fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident and obvious. Paul acknowledges the reality of sin, human appetite, and selfishness, and even says these are not of the kingdom of heaven. That's clear. But, and now you see why this text stands out in this passage, in all of Scripture, and in all of history. But, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The grammar in original sources in Scripture is not always there. Certainly in Hebrew, the Old Testament, but even in Greek, the grammar, there's a lot of kind of discussion as to, you know, where's the comma and where's the period and all these kinds of things. And so you have been taught most of the time that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. See how I did that? But it is also an interpretation here, and it's valid, and you're okay to hold both, that the way this is actually written is the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then joy, peace, patience. As if love, all of these things are contained within love. It certainly fits the rest of Scripture and how, we, how we're taught about our Lord Jesus Christ. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I know he loves the world and I know he loves me. And then I see it working out. Joy, peace, patience, kindness. All attributes of our Lord and Savior. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you note first the contrast. I want you to note the contrast between these two lists. The first list are things you do to satisfy your own appetites. And at certain times in history, including now and including then, such satisfaction is considered a virtue in our world. You're better or you have a better life if you can satisfy all the things that you want. But on that first list, the desires of the flesh, the motivation is to satisfy your appetite. And any other persons involved is not really thought of like a person. They are instead an object. And there is a separation between me and that other person. That other one is used, consumed, judged, whatever. The difference in this, in our lives, between something like lust and something like love. The list of the fruit of the Spirit. Actually, just side note here. Um, I am, you are too. I know you are because I know how you talk about people and mostly what you do is complain to me about other people. Sorry. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Did you not know that? <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I know I'm overstating it, but it does happen. And sometimes, especially, you know where we're especially good at this is how good we are at judging people we don't know. 
whether it's somebody from a different religion or somebody that we, you know, drive around, you know, we drive by them, but we don't know them. We know they're just a terrible person because they did some dumb thing when they were driving. And so recently, because of the weather, and I can't ride my bike so much, I told you this before, but I've been going to the gym, Trevor Linden Fitness. It's a good deal. But anyway, I'm astounded at how disgusting people are. Should this have been a surprise to me? It's astounding. I'll t- I would tell you, and I could do it because Paul's language is grosser than mine, but you can ask me later what it is that I noticed that just made me go, what is wrong with people? How could they do that? And of course, the answer so often, whether it's somebody else's behavior of your own, or your own, is that the way that you did that was not thinking about any, anybody else at all. I don't care if somebody else has to come clean this up. It's of no significance to me. Because what I want to do right now is this. That's the first list. Others are less than me. The second list does the opposite. The fruit of the Spirit. The other is always a person. As much of a person as I am. Maybe I should consider them even before myself. Read Philippians 2. The other. And this list, look at these words. All of these things, joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, all contained within this larger concept of love. But they are self-giving. They are mutual. Both people in the exchange become more. See that? Whereas in the first list, both people become less. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sin in Christian understanding has mostly to do with relationship. That's our law above all. Love God and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why you can see that religion itself can be sinful. Because religion can use the other person instead of this mutually edifying relationship. These are things that aren't in the realm of rules. That's when when Paul says, you know, against these things there's no law. That's what he's meaning. These are bigger than law and rules. He's not saying that morality and law and rules don't matter. He's saying these things are bigger. In fact, these things help you understand those. We need to find a better way to speak about our Christian faith, to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, than to be thought of as people who really want to impose a moral grid upon the world. We want to invite people to freedom in Jesus Christ, and that will be transforming. Christianity has at its heart not a moralism, but faith in Jesus Christ, forgiveness, the cross. So the Judaizers, those who came in with this box, took the reality of the human condition, and they were right about that. So, you know, when you are able to list other people's sin, do you think you've achieved something? Paul says, of course they're right about how depraved people can be. That's not my issue. My issue is what is going to solve this. And Paul says no to their system. And we still need to say no to it today. The reality of the human condition is you, like me, think of benefits and responsibilities 
We so often think if I could just get what I want, then that means a good life. The call of the Christian faith is to trust in Jesus Christ and to walk in the Spirit. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. You say, well, how am I going to walk in the Spirit? The promise is that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you walk in the Spirit. And you say, well, how did that person become more loving? I visit some people. I could go through names here, and sometimes I do, and then it just, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I visit some people, and I think, how could they be filled with such peace? Such love. And in many cases, these are people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and they're walking in the Spirit. What happens when you feel and know this love and joy and peace? We've done it already this morning and we're doing it again in a a minute. What happens is you sing. The first list makes you more aware of yourself, your own appetites, sexual immorality and all the things. That's what the first list does. And so the more you satisfy your appetite, the more you need to satisfy your appetite. The more it drives you away from other people, and it makes you and them less. Second list, if you can grow in things like love and joy and peace, and the Bible doesn't say here, you know, conjure this up in your life, right? Come up with a 20-point plan to become more loving. The Bible says that as you walk in the Spirit, this will be the fruit of your life. And so all I need to do is, of course, ask you, is it? See what? And as soon as I do, you go back to the religion, right? I don't think that it is. What do I need to do to, right? I need to be more joyful. You You just have a different box now. You need to know the power of the Holy Spirit in trusting in Jesus Christ, and that joy will come. The promise of the gospel, the promise of scripture. We sing when we feel these things. Sometimes actually singing like we're doing this morning. And sometimes you just know those days where you feel that. So a quote that I'll read for you. The community which does not sing is not the community. And where it cannot sing, it means literally singing, but also metaphorically, figuratively. Where it cannot sing in living speech or only in repeating things of the past. Where it does not really sing but sighs and mumbles spasmodically, shamefacedly and with an ill grace. You know what produces that? Mumbles spasmodically, sighing and ill grace, committing your life as if this is what gets you your standing before God. If it does that, it can be at best only a troubled community which is not sure of its cause. Spasmodic sighs and mumbles, or this, to see that in Christ Jesus, benefit and responsibility come together. Now that's not always easy for all of us. And I'm aware that some of you might have employment or something that you don't feel is super meaningful. Although if you get to work with people, it's always meaningful. But benefit and responsibility come together. And you see that this responsibility is gift. The fruit of the Spirit. New life. Always new and always singing and living speech. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has set us free from our own sinful nature and he has set us free from some grid imposed upon us. Always. 
Would you like to know faith in Jesus Christ? Would you like to know freedom? I ask and offer that to you if you've prayed the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my heart, or if you haven't. Would you like to know freedom and joy in Jesus Christ? Then you simply pray, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I trust in you, not in myself. Would you allow my life to be marked by fruit of the Spirit? And I thank you. I thank you for this whole world. And I thank you for your love. As we take communion, that's what I want you to have in your mind. You might have your own things and that's fine. But if you, you know, if you don't have something that's driving your thought like that, then I'll offer you one. This is what Jesus Christ has come to do. Giving his body and shedding his blood, he has come to set us free. And when you're free, you know the rest, most of you, you are free indeed. This is a tremendous gift to the church, and it's a gift we have to witness to the world. So as I take, this is what I'll do, okay, so you know. As I'm handed that bread, this is the body of Christ broken for you, I'm praying simply, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for giving your life for me and setting me free. As I receive the cup, this is the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I say thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that even my sinfulness doesn't stop your love. I trust in you. We say this communion is for anybody who knows Jesus Christ or would like to. You're welcome to receive it. You can just take it as it's handed to you. We won't wait to do it together. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit, because you are our guide and our teacher. Redeem my words and thoughts and help us to hear for your glory. Help us to know the freedom, Lord Jesus, that we have in you. And we do remember as we take this communion the night that you were betrayed. I'm so often struck by that. That on the night when one of your closest friends betrayed you, you gave him bread. You passed the cup to him. That your love overcomes all. So it overcomes my sin. And I trust in you. And it overcomes even those places of religion that can be death. And I trust in you. Help us to share this communion well and together, declaring our faith in you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.